0: I want you to imagine, if you will, a fort that is built to defend a kingdom from enemy invasions. Imagine this fort. And imagine that these soldiers who have been assigned to man that fort were a ragtag bunch of undisciplined sluggards, okay? They sleep in, entirely out of shape. They drop their weapons and run at the first sign of trouble. They never clean their armor. They never sharpen their swords. They skip guard duty. They fall asleep while on post. All oh, a host of undisciplined things. But the land that they're meant to defend is not particularly desirable to the enemy. And so as a result of this, there's a very little risk of invasion. The fort saw little action, and the land enjoyed relative peace. Picture in this fort. Now, I want you to imagine that in that territory, some inhabitants of the land discover an incalculably rich gold deposit in the hills, just waiting for those to come and mine it. Now, word spreads overnight, and the land is filled with the news that now this territory is seen as much more valuable than ever before. And therefore, it is significantly more liable to invasion. So, with that illustration in mind, what is the obvious problem? The obvious problem is the soldiers, isn't it? The problem is that there is a lack of control, of power, of discipline, of ability to defend because of these sluggards. That fort isn't going to do a lick of good if the undisciplined soldiers abandon their post at the first sign of trouble. The newly found prosperous land deserves a highly trained, fully committed, disciplined group of warriors to defend it. To simply put it this way, better land deserves way better soldiers. Now, in this simple illustration that I'm just kind of laying out for you, I'm intending to to help you see kind of the same line of thinking that the author of Hebrews is going to employ in the passage we're going to read today. He's been making the claim that this covenant that Jesus mediates is a far better covenant, and he's going to say it even more and greater in upcoming weeks as we look into the future chapters of Hebrews. But right now, the point that he's about to make is that Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, is greater, better, higher, than those of the old covenant. Because the new covenant is way better, so should be the priest that maintains it. I want to read for you the chapter that we're going to be in today, Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 26 through 28. That's what we're going to cover today, just those three verses. But I want to read for you 23 through 28, just to back up and give you a little bit of context. So I'm going to read that. I'll pray, and then we're going to dive back in and do about a verse at a time and ask God for good benefit. Father, as we dive into this text and we seek to understand what it is that you meant for the first audience and what you mean for us to take away from it, and uh, as we seek ways to apply these three verses we're going to cover to our life, to to this very day, Lord, we need help. We need help for you to, to get the obstacles of self out of the way. Help us to get the obstacles of, of maybe our current context might kind of make us see things a little bit skewed. Lord, help us to see things rightly through your word. Father, we need you just to obliterate those obstacles for us today. Help us, help us to think rightly today. Send your spirit to do that work in our hearts that we may be well served by this passage, not just for today, not just for this week, but for the rest of our lives. We ask you to help us provide that miracle. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. I'm going to put the verses up there one at a time that we're covering so you can follow along uh, where where we are. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, real quick, to set the stage, in case you haven't been with us for a while or have maybe missed the past few sermons, the whole point that the author has been making up through this point in Hebrews is that Jesus is better... The new covenant that he's initiating and he's brought to the people is better. And that is true in every way. He is our ultimate and only, final prophet, priest, and king. For the last couple chapters, he's been making the point that Jesus is greater in priesthood than all those priests of the Old Testament. Because he has been made uniquely a priest in the order of Melchizedek, while the Old Testament priests have been made in the order of Aaron. The Levitical priesthood. We spent weeks on that. Go ahead and check that out if you're curious as to what we mean by that. That's all walked through carefully for several weeks, unpacking it. But the author continues to make the point that Jesus is better than those priests. And he starts in this particular passage by saying this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, who is holy, unstained, innocent, separated. So the question we have to ask ourselves real quick is, why, Why is it so fitting? Why is it so suitable Why does it make sense in the mind of the author and that his appeal, his logical appeal for the audience, why is it that they should go, yeah, okay, yeah, it does make sense. It would be fitting or suitable for him to be holy, innocent, unstained. I think the answer is most clearly given down in chapter eight, verse six. There's only a few verses below. I'm just gonna read that for you quick and show what it says. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates, Is better, since it is enacted on better promises. To summarize, what I think he's saying here is the new covenant is so much better than the old that it deserves a greater priest. It is fitting that this way, way, way better covenant should have a way, way, way better priest. You see that illustration I tried to introduce this with. The better, most pr- more prosperous, more valuable land deserves better soldiers to defend it. It's that same kind of argument. Because the covenant is so much better, doesn't it make sense, audience, Hebrews? Doesn't that make sense then that God would give us a better priest to manage, to mediate, to deal with that covenant? Matthew 9, verse 16 through 17. Jesus says this. I'm gonna make a connection here. Try to follow me. Matthew 9. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. What Jesus was saying here in Matthew 9 Was he saying that these ceremonial forms, the rituals of the Old Covenant, that was in the context of him talking about a regular fasting that the the Pharisees did. Why don't don't the disciples do that? And he gives this as the answer. This is why. Because those old ceremonial forms and rituals, those outward signs that, that were symbolic and representative of the Old Covenant are to be done away with in the establishing of the New. The old covenant was like the old garment, the old wineskin. But Jesus was establishing a new covenant with his people. And the substance of the new covenant is like a new piece of cloth. It's like new wine. And it cannot fit into the old covenant forms you guys see the picture that Jesus is using there? If you took that whole system and all you did was, well, let's just kind of dump out the sinful guys in there and put a good, holy, perfect guy inside. Let's just, let's just, the priest was a sinner, so what if we had a non-sinful priest? What if we just solve it that way? Jesus is saying, listen, we've got to literally do away with the old and the establishing of the new. The new covenant cannot be mediated by sinful, merely human priests. We need something better. If you were to read through the Old Testament, just straight through, Genesis through Malachi, just read through the whole Old Testament. When you get to the end, one of the things I think we're supposed to sense is when we get to the end of that history to go, man, these people messed up. The Israelite people, as a nation, offered the best that they had. God grabbed the best that Israelites had to offer. And none of them could do their job. All of them were stained. All of them were faulty. All of them were sinful. None of them could do it. You don't get to the end of the Old Testament and say, well, let's try it again. Same thing all over again. Maybe we'll get a better king. Come on, come on, king, better king. Let's get a better prophet. Let's get a better priest. Let's get better mediators of the covenant. That's all we need to do is solve that problem. Jesus in Matthew 9 is saying, no, that whole system needs replacing. And he tells us, that because the new covenant is so much better, it deserves something better as well. It deserves a better mediator. So if you were to look at that Matthew 9 example, of the new wine, old wine, the old wineskin, new wine, consider this for a second. Imagine that you had, you had old wine and an old wineskin, and then you got a new wineskin. So you dump out the old wine, you, you dump it back into the new wineskin. Jesus is saying, both have to be replaced. Now the author quickly moves on to say that there's something about Jesus he's going to emphasize right here, that makes him so much better. What is it here that he's saying makes Jesus so much better than the Old Testament priest? And this is the obvious point where he goes. He says that we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That's what our author is focusing on now. That's what he's emphasizing in this passage, in these few verses. What do we see in these three verses? The purity, the holiness, the perfections of Jesus. And that is what makes him so much different than the Old Testament priest. There are many other things as well that he's covered already and will cover again. But here he's identifying the perfections of Jesus that make him so different from his predecessors. Look at the words. First, he's what? Holy. We have such a priest, high priest, holy Jesus is holy. Holy means set apart, but it actually means more than just that. It's not just set apart as though it's distinct. There's lots of things that we can imagine that are set apart for judgment. We have prisoners in a prison because they're set apart because of sin. We can imagine set apart and not pure, right? So set apart here means more than just distinct, distinguished, put aside. It means set apart in absolute purity particularly when talking about God. Read Isaiah 6.3. It might be familiar to some of your minds. It says this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the Old Testament, we, we, see, this, we see this image being given to the people. It's, it's actually a physical location, a tabernacle. It'll eventually evolve into what becomes the temple. And there's two rooms there, right? If you know this, you'll know that there's two rooms and they're named the holy place and the most holy place, the set-apart, devoted, pure place, and the most set-apart, most pure, most devoted place. Those are the two parts of the tabernacle and then the temple. Those were designed to show the people that God wanted to dwell with them and yet at the same time must remain separated from them. Isaiah 59.2 says that our iniquities have caused a separation between us and God. Because of our sins, we don't hang out in the inner court. That's the starting point here. Because of our sins, our impurities, we don't trample the mud on our feet into the holy places. That's the idea that's being, that's being utilized there. So in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, people would look to the temple. They would look to the tabernacle and they would see that as an image of God being with them and yet still separate from them. Temples are a picture of separation between God and men. That's what they are. People would have seen this and known this. Jesus was holy. This means that he was the only one who was able to enter on his own merit, on his own intrinsic, inherent worth and purity into these Holy places, the holy place and the most holy place. Jesus alone could do it. Undefiled, perfect, complete. You know, this whole idea of holiness goes throughout the entire Bible, tells us about God. One of the things that just is over and over and over repeated about our God is that He's holy. We see holy, holy, holy in the Old Testament talking about God. You know what we see in the book of Revelation? As the saints fall down, as the angels fall down and and bow before the throne, what is it that the, the, the angels and the saints in Revelation sing to the Lamb, sing to the one on the throne? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's three times holy in those songs. There's no more emphatic way to make it clear that he is perfect and pure, sinless, faultless in every possible way. Jesus is holy. And he fulfills the Melchizedek priesthood. You know, the Old Testament priests, those in the line of Aaron, they were supposed to be holy. In fact, they were explicitly commanded to be holy. They were even to provide a model of holiness for the people. But many of them led the Israelites into the worship of false gods and honestly, a whole host of other abominations, wicked sins. And it wasn't just the priests who were to be holy. Even though they were to model it, they were to lead that out, they were to represent that before the others. It even says this about the entire congregation of Israel in Leviticus 19 Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. People were commanded to be set apart to be pure, to be fully devoted, consecrated to God. In our statement of faith at the Mission Church, we have, we have a statement of faith. Just this is the this is summary of what we believe here. And then we have a membership agreement. When someone says, hey, this is my church home. I want to be a member here. I want everybody to know in my church that I'm a believer and I'm doing church here. Membership agreement and our statement of faith say a very, almost exactly the same clause in there about Holiness. And it's because it's Old and New Testament. It's all over the place. Command for us to be holy. I want to read you this portion of our statement of faith. It says, we believe it is the duty of every Christian to pursue a life of maximal holiness, purity, and conformity to the word of God in thought and deed. Here's what we mean by this. The words are carefully chosen. We believe that it's the duty of every Christian to pursue this. Now, we know that no Christian is going to have this. All of us are sinners every day of our lives. So therefore, it can't be a prerequisite for membership to be perfectly holy in yourself in order to come, be part of this body. But we are to pursue holiness. And what kind of holiness? Did you hear the wording there? Maximal holiness. The wording was chosen very carefully and intentionally. Because it could be easy for us to say, man, man, living a life, like Paul says, to, to a spirit versus flesh battle, that's a war raging every That's exhausting. Man, I, I, I love the Lord. I'm saved not by works at all. I am saved by grace alone. And as a saved person, I want to honor God by what I do. Amen and amen to that. But a person could wrongly say, therefore, I just, I give up. I'm good enough. I'm better than my neighbor. And so as long as I'm better than the neighbor, I I guess I'm pure enough, I'm holy enough. God, I'm not going to work on any other sin. I'm not going to repent of any other ill deed I do in the future. I'm not even going to try. I'm just, whatever I got right now is good enough. I'm just going to be, no, maximal holiness in the pursuit of it is saying every day of our lives, we bow before the Lord and we say, God, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm not, I can never be. Thank you, you you've made Jesus perfect. That his perfection has been attributed to me. My salvation is secure because of that. But Lord, let me live in holiness. Let me repent of sin. Let me honor you by what I do. Show me today what errors, what sin, what things in my life do not conform to the image of Jesus. I want the maximal view of holiness. Lord, let me do this every day. Repent of sin every day. Seek to be like you every day until I see you face to face. We are commanded to be holy. Holy as God is holy. Holy as Jesus is holy. And we ought not pursue this reluctantly. Oh, man, I've got to be holy today. It's for our great joy and for his glory. Do you love holiness? Do you love purity? There's so many impure things in this world, aren't there? We're, they're all over us. In fact, everywhere we look, we can find people and influences, even in our own hearts, that try to tell us what is right and what is wrong? The world attempts daily to define for us what is just and what is right. Well, that view is corrupted. I want you to imagine for a second. You guys watch the news. You know a little bit of what's going on out there in the world. It's, isn't it not fascinating that there's a variety of views on how, on, on how serious COVID-19 is and, and how people ought to act and react to that, okay? Policies and, and practices and just the way that we operate in our individual lives, even in the government, how the government should do things. There's lots of different views out there. One of the things that is almost absent from the discussion is people pulling morality out and saying, oh, that's a good point you have there. That's interesting. That's, maybe, maybe you're right about that. I should think about the logic of that. Listen, in our day, people don't operate like that. In other words, if you do something contrary to somebody on another side of your view thinks, what's the response? You're terrible for doing that. You're wrong for thinking that. You are morally beneath me for thinking like that and operating like that. Isn't that the way it goes? Both sides of the aisle politically are doing this like crazy, and we knew they would when something like this happens. But citizens living next door to each other have differing views, and it's rarely, oh, that's a good point. I'll think about that. I'll process through that. It's say no, if you don't agree, you're wrong. We make judgment claims all the time about things right now. When we let anyone else, to include ourselves, define what is just and what is righteous and what is holy, that will undoubtedly be corrupted by the sinfulness of the world. When a person buys into worldly, unbiblical definitions of justice, it is inevitable that he or she will begin to judge God as unjust. You know what I mean, don't you? When a person says, well, here's my new version of justice. If you do that, if you come up with your own version of justice, righteousness, holiness, ultimate morality, and if it doesn't look like and come from God, what's eventually going to happen? You're going to judge God against your definition of justice, holiness. You and I have to be careful about this. Our heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. So how can we defend our hearts and minds from this wrong view of justice, wrong view of holiness? The answer is really simple. Don't look to the world, but look to Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Are you, think about again right now in our current situation, are you trying to figure out the right way to process to think and to behave right now? Are you, are, you, are you perfectly certain of every exact thing that should be done? Or is there any ambiguity at all in your mind? I'll tell you right now, if you're, if you're like most people that I've been in interaction with, there are certain areas we can feel pretty, pretty clear on and other areas we go, man, I don't know exactly how to process through that. You know what's not gonna help? Just one more graph or chart. You know what's not going to help? Just one more session watching the news. Scrolling or clicking. It's not like there's just one more article that can be written that'll finally put all the issues to rest. And now I know where I should be in my thinking about this. Oh, goodness, I struggle with this. There's nothing new under the sun. You want to know how we should react to this kind of thing? Open the word of God. There's no point in Christian life where we go, the Bible says nothing about this. There's no area like that. God's not sending an angel in quickly, get someone to write a new, a new uh, book in the Bible. Quick, put something in there. Nothing like that. We've got all that we need right here, and we just keep going back to it. Every principle and even clear, specific commands of how to deal with things are right there. No, that doesn't mean that we'll have a perfect view of it. Yes, of course, we'll have wrong interpretations because of our own sinfulness and our inabilities to even process rightly and the corruption of our minds. But it doesn't mean that God hasn't provided it for us. Then we should approach the Word humbly to know how we ought to react. We fix our eyes and our minds on the only one who is truly holy. None of those sources, none of those people, none of those influences, even ourselves, is fully, completely, inherently holy. It's oftentimes the exact opposite. What Christians need to do right now is to open the Bible in the morning. We might need to just fast from the news for a while, like just... Shut all that off. You you don't need another chart. Trust me, you need another another passage in the word. God is so good to provide for us now. And he's given us his son as a perfect model and example. Words of eternal life flowing from him. We go to him. Jesus is holy. The only one who's holy. Next, it says that he is innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Innocent. The author could have stopped at holy. Couldn't even. Holy, purity, purity perfections, completion, devoted to, entirely fulfilled. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. He added to this list to emphasize the absolute purity of Jesus. He's the only truly innocent person who has ever lived. He's the only man who's who's ever been fully, completely, and absolutely unstained. You know, in the New Testament, when the Greek word that's used there is, is used in other places, it's also rendered undefiled undefiled, unstained. It's talking about a ceremonial kind of uncleanness. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He was entirely unstained and undefiled. I don't know if you've ever read through the Old Testament. You set your, your mind like, all right, this is the year. I'm doing the Old Testament. You read through Genesis. Ah, look at all those good stories. That's, that's okay. I can do this. I can do this. Exodus is looking pretty good. You get to about chapter 20, and you're like, all right, Pharaoh, Egypt, the walls of water. The, okay, the story, the narratives you can get through, you can draw them out like a comic book. And then, bam, you hit the law. Oh, man, I was doing pretty good there. You start reading through passage after passage about what to do when an ox gores your neighbor. And what to do when a man tries taking his, his, his sister for a wife, and, and what to do if somebody steals a sheep, and you're just like, oh my goodness, all this stuff is just all. And a lot of believers, a lot of believers will pause and go, my goodness, this lists are so long, and they're so specific, and all the things and the details, oh, it's so intense. And some of them repeat each other, and they go over, oh, how much is to think about this? Let me give you at least one thing, at least one thing that I think we can draw from that and have such, such great help from. If nothing else, just a starting point for you. Jesus was born in that system. Jesus was given all of those laws, civil, ceremonial, all of it. He's, all, the, all those words, Jesus was given them. And honestly, there is not a single civil ceremonial system in the history of the world that has held a higher standard than the holiness code given to us in the Old Testament. And Jesus followed it perfectly. Jesus was not born into an anarchist state where it'd be easy for him to say he did nothing wrong. Jesus was born under the highest standard of morality that has ever been penned. And he fulfilled it perfectly. When you read through those, do it. Read through those. That's the law of God. Read through it and love it. And as you read through it, look through it and go, Jesus followed all of this. He, he knew all of this perfectly. He could repeat it. He knew all every line that I'm like, trying to remember. He fulfilled it a perfect, holy, undefiled, unstained Savior we have. It says that he is separated from sinners. Separated from sinners. Now, this does not mean that he does not relate to us. On the contrary, right? The author has already made it abundantly clear that Jesus does relate to us. I just want to show you, if you haven't been with here for months ago, when we started into this. In Hebrews 2, it says this about Jesus. Since therefore the children, humanity, the Israelites, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Is awesome. In fact, it was even Jesus who was called out by the religious hypocrites for spending time with sinners. You should be separated from sinners, Jesus. And he kept hanging out and going into their homes and, and, and converting their souls and healing them. It made people very uncomfortable. Jesus is not worried about becoming unclean from interacting with sinners. In fact, Jesus alone, because of his perfections and his purity, when he interacted with, un- with defiled peoples, he made them undefiled. My favorite pictures of this is in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus uh, sees a funeral procession. And, and the, the author tells us, Luke tells us that there is a widow of Nain whose only son dies. And she's in tears and weeping in this funeral procession. She's lost the, another closest relative that she has. Her husband's already died. And now her son has died. And the whole funeral procession is marching down, down, down the street. And now people weren't supposed to touch dead bodies or they'd be, un, they'd be defiled, they'd be unclean. And Jesus walks up to this thing and he touches. The casket. And the man comes alive. It's so awesome. Jesus transfers perfect and ho- holiness to, to raise this guy up from the dead. So if a person says, you should not touch a dead thing. He's not dead. Jesus is amazing. His separation, separation from sinners is the same as what he demands of his disciples. John 17, verse 15 through 18 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. That's making them holy, holiness. In the truth. Your word is truth. As you, he's, he's praying to his father, as you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into the world. So is Jesus saying, stay away from everybody? No, he sends them out to heal, to proclaim the good news. Jesus is separated from sinners in that he is absolutely distinct in his purity and in his sinlessness. And lastly, he is exalted above the heavens. Exalted above the heavens. Now, we use the language a little bit, but the ancients were more familiar with the idea of heavens in a plural. Okay? And what they mean by heavens is that the ancients looked up and would refer to multiple layers of creation that's above them. So the sky is a heaven. The birds fly in the sky. The birds fly in the heaven. There's another heaven above that. That's outer space. That's where the the stars and the the moon and the planets exist. That's that's another kind of heaven to them. That's two heavens. And they would think of at least a third kind of heaven, and that would be the dwelling place of God and angels. It was a spiritual kind of place. That's what was in mind, so they'd say heavens. The first verse of the Bible makes this clear to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But notice the point the author is making here with this language, that Jesus is exalted above the heavens. Now remember, the whole point of this passage is to show that he's different, better, and above all those other ones who come before him, all the other priests. So what is different about Jesus? This list, including that he is exalted above the heavens. None of those priests get exaltation. None of them, zero priests, get exalted but Jesus. He gets that uniquely. Isaiah 2, 17 says this, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Who alone is exalted in that final day? Even when all the believing community is there in heaven with him, who is the only one who receives exaltation, he alone, the Lord, will be exalted in that day. Jesus has what you and I will never have. He is worthy of exaltation, of worship, and of praise. And I want you to notice again, Jesus is not in the heaven or in the heavens. He's exalted above the heavens. The reason I bring this up is because this is, is a common uh, part of LDS teaching. And so for those, those of you who might ever hear this thing, come from an LDS background, and heard all of your life about the multiple levels of heavens and stuff, listen, here's the deal. Simply put, just right here in this verse, no matter how many heavens you think that there are, Jesus is exalted above them. However many you think that there could be, he's at the top. There is no heaven that is over Jesus. He is over all of the heavens. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. Jesus is exalted alone, and Jesus is above all of the heavens. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing in creation ever will be seen as equal to or higher than Jesus. And he continues on to verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Now, what's in view here is not the Day of Atonement. I want to say this quickly. If you're thinking real quick, well, yeah, the high priest, he's the one who one time a year offered the, uh, the Day of Atonement sacrifice for the sins of the people. That's true. And actually, the author is going to make a major case of this in Hebrews 9 and 10. We're coming back to Day of Atonement. But here he's talking about the daily sacrifices. You see that? He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. He's referring to Exodus 29. Let me read this for you real quick. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. He's talking to the high priests who've just been ordained. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of the meeting meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. So they would have to offer sacrifices daily. This was a necessary, regular responsibility for the Aaronic priests. But he, Jesus, has no need to offer those repeatedly. Why? Because he did it once and for all. The author just explicitly said that Jesus was perfectly innocent. So we know that he's not saying that Jesus needs to offer a sacrifice for his sin. He's made that clear. Jesus offered himself up for the sins of the people. That's the second part of what's being said. And then for those of the people. That daily sacrifice is done away with, gone, obliterated, obsolete. Why? Because the once and for all sacrifice was pure enough, was perfect enough, was holy enough, complete enough to overwhelm and cover over all of the blood sacrifices of old. By that one act, he made perfect those who believe in him, rendering obsolete every blood sacrifice forever. There's much more on Jesus and his once and for all sacrifice coming up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Look look at what he's comparing here again. The law, Old Testament times, appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is another fault of the law. The word fault is used in Hebrews to refer to the old covenant law. A weakness of the old covenant that the best the law could provide was sinful men. Just weak men. But Jesus was established by the word of the oath. In other words, it was not a system that appointed Jesus, but the word of God, calling out his only son. And he does not just appoint a random man. He appoints a son, capital S, son here. Notice again, this whole passage is saying the difference between the priests of old and Jesus. They are not sons. He is a son. That's the whole point. God didn't appoint a son in the Old Testament. He appointed men. Men and priests were not sons. Jesus is a son. And he appoints them by the word of his mouth. Does this mean that Jesus was in some sense not perfect because it says that he's been made perfect forever? That he had to be made perfect from imperfections? No. I want to point you back real quick to something I said a couple weeks ago just to to remind you. The word perfection and perfect being used here in Hebrews and being used back in chapters, earlier in the same chapter, chapter 7, verse 11, is the word that's used in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to refer to consecrating. So when the priests of the Old Testament were consecrated, ordained for their function as a priest, they were perfected for that role. That's the word that would have been used. That was the thinking in the mind of the Hebrew. He was being made perfect for the role of priest. That was the idea. That's why it says in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? And remember the point that was made there is there was a major problem with that consecration that perfection, what was the what was the problem? It wasn't able to actually bring about transformation. It was just an outward sign. You could put the hat on any guy you want. You could put all the, all, the, all the little pieces of all their equipment all over them to show that a guy was made uh, suitable for this role, but his heart was not. He would mislead the people. He would lead them wrongly. The point is that the law required an outward perfecting for the priest, but that outward symbol was powerless because of the impurities in their heart. But Jesus' consecration, Jesus' perfection was complete and flawless. Because not only was he appointed by God's word, that oath, but he had no faults that would invalidate that consecration. Seriously, think about it. The high priest in the Old Testament could not make it five minutes past their ordination ceremony before dishonoring their sacred duties. If you were to look in the, the, the consecration passage of the Old Testament... Literally, the very next verse after Aaron and his sons are ordained, the next verse is his sons leading people into idolatry and then being killed for it. Literally the next verse. Man was weak. But Jesus is and forever will be absolutely pure and faultless. I want to land the plane with this, this thinking, okay? If you were to say, Rich, we just read three verses The first one took a little more time than the others. If we were to read read through those three verses, why are those in the Bible? What are those for? What would be missing from the argument in Hebrews if that wasn't there? It's a great question to ask yourself when you're reading a text. The point is not mysterious. It's not difficult to even see. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus, as distinct from Old Testament priests, is absolutely sinless. He's perfect. That if Jesus failed in even one area, he'd be considered a lawbreaker. He would not have been able to offer a sacrifice for you and me. You and I are in the same category. Like all other humans, we are sinners. Jesus is the only one counted pure and perfect. And he's the one who was made our priest. You and I don't want a priest from our side of the line. If you were to strike a line down the middle of this room and around the planet... And every person who's ever done even one tiny, seemingly insignificant sin were to cross that line and get on this side, how many of us would be there? All of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. We would all be there. Who would be on the other side? Jesus alone. Alone. Where do you want our priest to come from? That side. And that's how God designed it. This means that Jesus can understand your sin battles more than anyone else. Let me say that again. Jesus can understand your battle with temptation and sin better than anyone else. Before you throw that in the bucket of, well, he's divine, so yeah, as God, he understands more completely. No, no, no. Experientially, in his humanity, Jesus can understand your sin battle more than anyone else on the planet who ever has or ever will live. When you're in heaven someday because of faith in Jesus, spending an eternity there, and you want to relate to somebody who can truly, genuinely know and understand the temptation and sin you dealt with, Jesus is who you'd talk to. And you can. I know people sometimes say, but Jesus can't understand my sins. No, if he's perfect, that means that he, he's, he's the, the pretty boy who never did anything wrong. He can't, under, he can't understand. Do we play this game a little bit? Have you ever had that in your mind, your heart? Have you ever even known someone who might have brought that up if not for you? You're like, man, I used to struggle with drugs, hardcore. I need somebody who struggled with drugs, fell, and then came up out of that. That's the person who can help me because they understand it better. You struggle with lust, or impurity. You want to know the guy who was, who was enslaved to pornography for years, fell, and then, then found his way out of that mire by God's grace. You want to find that person to talk to you. That's the way we tend to think, right? In a human sense, it makes sense to us because we think, well, that person must understand that sin more. And that might be true to some extent when you're thinking about other people. But Jesus is the only one who can understand the weight of temptation for what it really is. I've heard a few illustrations in my life given to try to explain that, but I want to offer one up for you today. I want you to imagine a steel platform, like a pallet, that's suspended from a crane by a steel cable. And it's being held right about a foot off the ground, just just high enough that you could belly crawl underneath it. And I want you to imagine also that the platform is just light enough that you're able to lift it up onto your shoulders and stand up there, a little loose cable. You, you, You can hold that platform there, and you can say, I'm doing okay. It's heavy, but I got this. But then temptation comes. And that temptation is like a sack of concrete Dropped onto that platform. Oh. And then another temptation comes. Another sack. And then another. And another. And your your knees begin to buckle and shake. You can barely hold that temptation up. You're about to fall. You're about just to fall right into sin. Face first into sin because you can't hold it. And every morning you wake up, it's like that. Now, now, now zoom out from this illustration in a minute and imagine to your right, you see another guy and he, he's holding his platform with more temptations. And to the left, you see another woman and she's holding your platform, with more temptations. And all around, every human has got this temptations burden on their shoulders. Some have just given up and it's laying on the ground and say, forget it, I'm not even gonna fight it. And others are trying and trying and trying. And even the strongest amongst us cannot hold the weight so that all of us have fallen to the ground. While your face is in the dirt and you, and you look up and you see out of that one foot little spot you've been crushed into and you look up, there's one who's standing. And he's got the steel platform on his shoulders and he's holding all the weight of temptation. And you watch as one sack of concrete gets dropped after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And no matter how much temptation comes... Jesus, that only one who's able to stand, holds all of it, all of that weight. You and I have fallen over and over and over again. He's standing perfectly sound. He's got it. He's holding it up. Now you tell me, who is the only one who understands the full weight of sin? Who's the only one who really knows what the weight of temptation is like? see, that's Jesus. Don't ever think that you understand the weight of your sins more than Jesus. Don't ever think that somebody else in your life can understand the weight of sins more than Jesus. He really knows because you fell before those other ones came. You had a breaking point. You had a point at which you couldn't hold it anymore, but he continued to hold fast in purity and perfection. His sinlessness means he is more suited to deal with you and your sins, not less, Go to Jesus with your sins. That's the application. Go to Jesus with your sins. Isn't, isn't it fascinating then why we have, a, we have like a, a sense in our heart and in our mind that when we're carrying those sins or we're falling to them, we want to go away from Jesus, run to him. Jesus understands more than anyone could possibly understand. He carried the weight not only of his own sins, not only of his own temptation, but all of those of the world. This would, this, would be like, this would be like, in that illustration, as you're laying on the ground underneath the pallet that's hanging, suspended over you, that has all the weights on it, all of a sudden they, they get lifted off and they go onto Jesus' pile. And he still holds them up. He holds, his sin, or he holds his temptation come upon him and he holds the sin that we all fell from, the temptation that we had that we couldn't stand underneath, and he does it perfectly, in purity, without one moment of sin. It's amazing. And the greater the weight of that sin, the greater the weight of that temptation, the more glorious we find him to be. If you would close your eyes and bow your head, pray with me this morning. Father, this morning, I know that as we read this passage and we see the purity and perfection Holiness, innocence of Jesus upheld and just hammered for us. I pray that it would mean something to us, that we would be able to apply this to our lives, that we would run to Jesus when we need help. He's a high priest, he's there to mediate, he's there for us to run to him. He's there and he knows what our sin is like, he knows what our temptation is like. In fact, he was tempted by Satan himself and still stood strong. He never once faltered, he never once failed. Lord, let us be drawn to Jesus. Forgive us when we haven't done that. Help us to wake up every morning as we're preparing for our sin battle again and not think that we have to hold up our sins, hold out a temptation in order to be saved, but to acknowledge that our salvation is only because Jesus did it perfectly and he offers his salvation free of charge for all of those who will believe. Father, help us to believe in Jesus, to run to him and to see him exactly as the word tells us, perfect, pure, innocent, loving, faultless and holy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.